From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in most episodes of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with two alumni, both psychologists, Bernadine Supa, class of 1989, and William Osei, class of 2010. We'll start with Dr. Supa, who oversees school-based behavioral health for four different Pennsylvania school districts, supervises a team for Children's Service Center in Wilkesbury, and also works at an organization she co-founded called Autism Developmental Evaluation Resource Services. I began our conversation by asking how and when Dr. Supa became interested in her occupation. I went to Muhlenberg and I originally was pre-med, starting out like many students are when they go there. I took intro to psychology my freshman year also, first semester, and I really loved it. And I read a book called Dibs in Search of Self, which was about a little boy who had autism, although reading, now I'm not so sure, but um, anyway, it made me really interested in autism and interestingly enough, so then I went, went into the psychology field, I switched my majors, and I've been working with children in that field ever since. Even while at Muhlenberg, I did two internships, one at Wiley House, which is now called Kids Peace. Then also I worked for juvenile probation as an internship while I was there. Pre-pandemic, what was your work day like? Like if you had a typical work day or a typical work week, what Constantly was your schedule? Because like, I supervised five different school-based teams. So I would go to those schools between four and five hours a day, each of the schools. So every day would be a different school pretty much. And then on one day a week, I would go to the place where I do the ADOS um, testing, which is an hour and a half away from here, from where I live. It's in um, central Pennsylvania. And I would be there all day doing testing. So that's what my typical day would be like. Oh, I also do evaluations for BHRS for the IU also, which is changing to a different initials. But basically, it's for like TSS services and for kids that need help in school. TSS is like sort of like an aid, but it's, it's a behavioral type aid. So you have to qualify with the mental health diagnosis. You might have mentioned this already, but why were you interested specifically in working with children as opposed to other populations? I wanted to be a pediatrician initially. I always liked um, kids. I always loved kids. Initially, I wanted to have six kids, but I only have two, three, thank goodness, because six would have been crazy. I also have a son that's on the spectrum. He's 15 and he's nonverbal, mm-hmm. but extremely intelligent. He could type full sentences on his iPad. He never used icons. He always typed the words, but he just can't speak. What's your work life like now? Well, recently it's getting a little bit more back to normal, but immediately when it first happened, it was completely shut down because we were, for the first couple of weeks, we really weren't doing anything, which is hard because the kids that we have on our teams need services. They're not necessarily in school. They have a lot of issues at home too. So it made it really tough. Then we started doing stuff through telehealth. So I would do evals through telehealth and we would do, um, I would supervise the teams, but a lot less hours because I can't stay on the phone for five hours on a shot. That's kind of a long time. Now they're back in the schools, no kids. They're just still doing telehealth. So I could actually go see my team members. So I am doing that now. Mm-hmm. But now that the governor just shut things down a little bit more again, I'm not sure what's going to happen. What did you, did you see as the most challenging part of your job and what is the most rewarding part of your job if those things are different? The most challenging part actually continues to be the same thing even through this pandemic is oftentimes families of these kids that have issues are not as engaging as they should be. And actually it's probably worse now with the pandemic because 
they don't answer the calls. Like we'd still are doing like Zoom groups and they don't put the kids on the group or they ignore when our, my staff is calling them to get, you know, the child involved. So that even when they were in school, that was difficult because parents really sometimes are, not all parents are very involved. I tend to work with families that are more lower socioeconomic income. They're not as involved oftentimes. Where interestingly, oftentimes the kids that I'm testing for autism aren't always kids. I also do adults. That is much more, the people are more engaged in that and they really want an answer. So that's sometimes more fulfilling in some ways. But the, the most successful thing is actually really helping somebody. Like for the testing, getting an answer for someone and they're finally seeing, oh, yes, this is what's wrong. And, I can, and giving them direction on where they could go for more help. That feels really great when that happens. And for the kids on our school-based teams, I think, again, seeing a kid succeed, a kid who's had like a million referrals to the office and is on the verge of being put into like a partial hospitalization program and we helped turn that kid around and now he's doing well in school, that's amazing seeing that happen. As I said, I know some, something about autism, but um, just for any listener, what do you think are a lot of myths about autism and people with autism that you would like to correct? Oh, okay. The biggest one to me is that if someone's nonverbal, they must have intellectual disabilities. Not true. Some people just can't speak. My son's a perfect example of that. Like I said, he can type full sentences. He's never used, like, there's a program called Proloquo, which is how he communicates. And it has little icons, but he doesn't use the icons. He just types what he wants to say. And he's been spelling since he's three years old. We never, when he was three, he wasn't speaking still, but we had those letters on the refrigerator like a lot of people do for their kids. And the babysitter said, He's, he could spell words. We said, there's no, he's not even speaking. There's no way. How could he possibly spell words? So my husband opened up his laptop and he said, Mikey, spell mommy. And he just started typing M-O-M-M-Y. Spell all different words. And he would just type them. We couldn't believe it. So that to me, that's a big myth. Like that happens all the time. People say, oh, well, you know, they're nonverbal, so they mustn't be intelligent. Not true. The other thing is affection. A lot of autistic individuals are very affectionate. But the myth is that they're cold. I know I remember reading that Dibs book. It talked about how the, that was when they had the whole refrigerator mom theory, which is not true. But I find that a lot of autistic individuals are very affectionate, just like a typical person. Some people are more affectionate than others. And we know now that there is no one. Every person with autism is different, right? Definitely. There's no, you know, and that might be a myth too used to be the term Asperger's was used to define people who were on the higher end of the spectrum, but that's the Asperger's has gone away, right? And now it's just autism spectrum disorder, right? Can you talk about the different ways that people with autism are different from each other, like the different manifestations of autism? Okay, so I'll talk about the higher, I don't, want, I don't like to use the word functioning, but a higher level, I don't know how I want to say it usually present very differently than someone that's like lower um, on the autism spectrum range. Uh, again, it's, it's hard to talk like that because people right away want numbers or what does it mean? Or I love when someone says they have a touch of autism. There's no such thing <laughs> as a touch of autism. Right. But it's interesting. There are people that have autism that you could barely tell. They just like seem maybe a little bit socially off. So it's interesting when I test adults, because sometimes we'll have adults that come in and say like, I feel like something's been off all this time. I just want to know, am, am I autistic? And in the ADAS is a very interesting tool. I really like doing it 
it's very really looking at like the subtle nuances of conversation and how people emote when they talk and like me I'm using my hands right now because I'm Italian but gestures <laughs> people use a lot of gestures if they're not autistic but autistic people tend to not use gestures emotional nonverbal they won't go oh my goodness like they don't do things like that mm. so it's interesting to really like listen to someone's speech when you're doing these this evaluation and see how different it is but people that are higher on the higher um, level you would just think that they're a little bit socially awkward some people who are the opposite who are much lower functioning and they might have intellectual ability disabilities also and they're a lot more complicated so yeah so it's different i think it just depends on how you're, how you're functioning. And, and also, what other comorbidities are involved with the autism? I've had mm. kids that were extremely intelligent, high-functioning autism, but also had bipolar disorder. So when you have all that mixed together, it creates kind of a mess. So it makes it a lot dif more difficult. Right. Um, are there any other common comorbidities with autism? Uh, well, I mean, intellectual disabilities is a co comorbidity, but again, not for everybody. A lot of times anxiety is part of it. Oftentimes people will say that they, that they have OCD, but they really don't. It's just ritualistic behavior because they have autism. Mm. But they have anxiety and that's what causes the ritualistic behaviors, like lining things up or having to do things a certain way. So self-stimulatory behaviors could range from like flapping or repeating words back to more ritualized behaviors or specific interests, like being very interested in weather is common, for younger kids, like Pokemon and anime kind of stuff is common. When you're testing adults for autism, can you talk about, in your experience, how, how they react if and when they get that diagnosis? Um, I think it depends on what they want to hear. If it's someone who thinks they might have autism and is looking for that diagnosis, then they're like, hmm, and they're like kind of relieved to know that this is what's wrong. If it's someone who doesn't think they have it, and then they might be a little bit argumentative about it, or vice versa, if they want to have it and they don't, then they also, that's an issue. That's a big issue I even have with families. Like, for some reason, to me, it seems like people want, I don't know what it is about that diagnosis, like they want to have autism, like they want their kid to be autistic. You would say, like, that's what you would say, like, why, right? Yeah. Exactly. But I think a lot of it has to do with disability, and people think that, like, you know, what I always joke around and say is, it's like the magic tree growing in the backyard. You know, if you have that diagnosis, it grows and you shake it and money falls off. That's not what happens though. <laughs> um, but I think people think that. And the truth is anybody could get disability. It's not based on a specific diagnosis. It's based on your functioning. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you have autism or ADHD. I mean, there's kids that have ADHD and get disability. So, but also I, I see often kids that have a lot of trauma and they've had multiple, say, psychiatric hospitalizations, placements, children and youth involvement. And they're looking, it's almost like they're, they're like, they can't figure out what's wrong. So let's see if maybe it's autism. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those kids typically are not autistic. I mean, if somebody is already like 15 years old and has had all these hospitalizations and everything, they're typically not autistic. I think by then somebody probably would have figured that out. And so they come to us and I always am like, oh, okay. And we do the evaluation and very rarely does it come out that they're autistic. But I think people are sort of like grasping at straws. They want an answer. And if right. they can say they have autism, oh, that'll right. explain everything. But the truth right. is, unfortunately in society today, trauma is a big issue that kids go through that. I mean, and now once this pandemic is over, I'm kind of afraid to see what it's going to look like when we go back to school. 
these kids being home. I mean, for some kids, it's fine being home, but some of the kids that I work with being home is very triggering for them. Coming to school is a, a, like a kind of a peaceful place for them because they get away from some of the chaos and the things that they're experiencing at home. Mm-hmm. And now they're stuck home. When this thing finally ends and we go back to some sort of normalcy, how, how do you expect your job to be different then? Oh, I think it's going to be, we're going to have a gazillion referrals. And I think it's going to be, these kids are going to have a very hard time adjusting to school. Mm-hmm. I think just having to try to keep these kids with masks on and socially distancing, and it's going to be very, very difficult. They haven't had some of them, because let's face it, some of these parents are not doing schoolwork with their kids when they were supposed to be. So basically these kids have had off all this time. Now they're going to have to come sit in the classroom and do schoolwork. And these are kids that have behavior problems. It's not right. going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. Yikes. And I worry about my staff too, because a lot of these kids will do things like spit on you, get close in your face, and that's a safety issue. That's true. Wow. So I don't know how to handle that. Not going to be an easy road. No. Let's go back to getting the diagnosis of autism. Um, For, let's say, adults and, and adolescents, with a diagnosis, what's the next step? It depends on what kind of symptoms a person's having. For some adults, if they're pretty well-functioning in society, but they have some issues like getting along with others, I would recommend specific counselors or therapists for them to see. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I can't really recommend a specific person because they come from all over. Like, Believe it or not, we have people coming three, four hours just to get evaluated. Wow. Because the waiting lists are like really high to get evaluated from many different, most agencies, even for children. We work very closely with Geisinger. Dr. Chalman, who is the um, neurodevelopmental uh, pediatrician there, he sends us a lot of referrals because they tend to primarily focus more on the younger kids because that's when really intervention is like key. So if they're like an older kid that wants to be tested, he'll send them our way. So for older kids or kids, it, depending on what age, if they're a young age, we start right away with like, I saw a, a child recently that was like just turned three. So there, right away, we set up, okay, you need to get early intervention for them. We need to get speech and occupational therapy for them. We need to get them in um, ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis, where we um, start teaching them like how to communicate, how to sit at a table, how to listen to commands, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. As they're older, it might be more working on the social skills. So the agency that I work for, Aiders, has social skills groups or social groups where twice a month, now they're meeting via Zoom, but when they're normally, they'll be in person. And they work on those kind of things. And even with the adults, we, we work with a lot of adults. There's an autism waiver in Pennsylvania, so they could get sort of like uh, behavioral health services for adults. And then we also do the social groups and we do life coaching there. So it, it, again, it just depends, the recommendations based on what symptoms and what the person is struggling with. Well, being that I work at the Career Center at Muhlenberg College, I know that there are now companies and corporations that are kind of either actively recruiting adults on the autism spectrum or have special programs within their companies that are meant just to employ adults on the autism spectrum. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's fantastic, honestly. I really do. For example, if it's someone, they're very regimented people on the spectrum usually, and especially if you can give them a job, even like data entry, you don't have to worry about them like wasting time talking to their peers or you know, wasting time hanging out at the water cooler because socially they're not, when they're focused on the job, they're going to do the job. So in some ways that's really great. I think it's also good for some 
like lower functioning individuals so that they get a chance to be in the workforce. Like I know there was a place here that was a coffee shop and it was only run by people with developmental disabilities. Mm. And there was like another adult there supervising that wasn't obviously any mental health issues, but the the people that primarily worked there were people on the spectrum or had um, developmental disabilities, like um, intellectual disabilities, that kind of thing. Are you anticipating that employers will continue to to reach out and welcome this population into their companies and or even grow those programs? I, I hope so. I think so, because I think more and more people are getting diagnosed with autism. And it seems like, especially a lot of younger kids, they're going to be moving up to adulthood. And I think anybody wants to feel like a productive part of society. So I think it's important that they get a chance to work and, and be around people. You have a very demanding job. So are you comfortable talking about burnout and, and what you do for self-care? I, I try to like watch mindless TV kind of things like series on Netflix or something to try to relax or swim, listen to music, spend time with my kids, which are very important to me. But I think it's very easy to get burnt out especially because everything's supposed to be confidential. So you can't really just come home and talk about, mm. hey, this is what happened at work today. Yeah. Um, and some of the, more than the autism stuff, the abuse stuff, the trauma is really what's very hard for me sometimes to not be able to talk to other people about it. I also think it's important to have your own person, therapist, or person that you could vent to for self-care. That's very important. Sure, sure. For someone out there listening, whether they're a Muhlenberg alum or a student or anyone else who is interested in pursuing the work that you do, what recommendations or guidance would you give them? I would just try to get as much experience as possible because I think that's great. Muhlenberg, I have to say, really gave me an excellent education. When I went to graduate school for my, I have actually two masters and a doctorate, but I went for general experimental psych first. I was well beyond prepared compared to most of my peers in the classroom. Um, even with statistics, Dr. Herring, who's now the president, was my statistics teacher. Oh. And she is fantastic. I mean, I really was prepared for school. But also, I think having the ability to do internships was great. Uh, you know, the two internships I did while I was at Muhlenberg really helped me. And it also lets you see, like, what is it you're really interested in? And psychology is a very broad field. There's so many different ways you could go. So I think getting out there and, and experiencing things is really important. William Osei is a postdoctoral psychology fellow at Brooklyn Minds, a private psychiatric practice in Brooklyn, New York. Once again, I began our talk by asking Dr. Osei how he became interested in his occupation. I was kind of always around it. My dad is actually a therapist too, so... Uh, it was always familiar, but you, you never kind of like you either want to do what your dad does or you don't want to do what your dad was. <laughs> yeah. And I really didn't want to do what he did, but uh, I really want to give credit to Muhlenberg psychology department, especially Dr. Kate Richmond. I mean, she really brought like psychology alive to me and kind of opened up all the possibilities for things to study about how people think and how people work. And so that's really what really kind of got me interested in actually the field of psychology rather than just mental health care. And then... How did you go about kind of specializing? So again, uh, Kate really helped me out. Um, and this is where I really like always tell people, find good mentors, find the professors you really get along well with and build that relationship up. Because she kind of noticed my interest. My interest, especially around that time, was I was working, I would go home for the summers to Philadelphia. My dad worked in 
uh, residential treatment. So I'll be working with adolescent boys who are kind of removed from their homes in inner city Philly. And the work is really tough, but it's really rewarding to see these boys, like their behavior improve, their skills kind of get better. And I kind of brought that interest to Kate and I talked about her and I started writing these papers for her and she's like, Hey, there's people who do this and there's a you know, grad school where you can kind of specialize in this. And so at Muhlenberg, my senior year, Dr. Howard Stevenson from University of Pennsylvania came and gave a talk and he just had this really beautiful and interesting model of using basketball and martial arts to really help boys who are actually in behavioral schools in Philadelphia. They gave him like a whole disciplinary high school and were like, do whatever you want. And it was amazing to see how these, he really improved these boys behavior and made like lifelong relationships. And I was like, I want to do that. And she was like, you can do that. Like, and I never even thought grad school was an option. So she's like, no, apply to his program, go there and see if you can do it. And I did. And I was like flabbergasted when I got in. And from then I kind of just kind of followed that thread and just really got hungry for more and more and learning more and more about psychology and how people think and especially issues around, you know, race and gender and mm. class and culture and all that. What is a typical day like for you right now? Or do you even have a typical day? Yeah. I mean, the day switches like day to day, but you know, it'll be wake up like this, probably 15 minutes before, but hop on a zoom call in like for a morning check-in. And then throughout the day, you know, um, we've done a really good job as an organization kind of switching to like really intuitive technologies. So there's a lot of messaging programs and project management boards, right? And so like there'll be two or three meetings scheduled throughout the day. The team will meet um, and then we see clients between those. So you'll have regular sessions and kind of a lot of it has been just introducing clients to making sure they're in a private area, kind of letting them know you're in a private area and uh, calls are private and just having them agree to this whole new process. On the surface, it's just, it's pretty much been the same for me. I think maybe it's also, you know, because I'm a young, I'm younger um, and I'm entering this field, I'm more acclimated technology. So it really, the leap hasn't been as hard for me, but I know some of my, you know, mentors are struggling a little bit with the transition. I read that you're using a kind of treatment that uses magnets. What is that and how is it implemented? For years, we've kind of had this kind of model of using antidepressants, right? And like, the research has been pretty poor, right? We know they're less than like 2% effectiveness rate for like the average SSRI. And so like what you've seen in the last kind of 20 years is really um, researchers thinking like, that's terrible, right? So what are really novel approaches to like understanding mental health? And so like, we have really understanding that affecting the body is much more effective and especially the brain. And so when we look back at the day and we kind of think about electroconvulsive therapy and like where they were shooting electricity. Think of that to the 21st century, right? Let's move past that and understand that what they were trying to do was activate certain parts of the brain to alleviate the distress uh, of that person. So mm -hmm. what we've discovered today is with um, increased knowledge of the areas of the brain and our increased knowledge of, you know, um, how mental illness actually affects different sectors of the brain what we can do is we can take a really powerful magnet and shoot it into that area of the brain. And what we're seeing is, for example, with depression, um, we can bring depression down to remission. So somebody can come in and over the course of months go from having treatment resistant to depression to not having it at all. And a lot of this was, this is why I love Brooklyn Minds. They were kind of at the cutting edge of this. Uh, Dr. Muir has been doing this for, you know, over a decade now. So, and this was, this is really cutting edge kind of 
um, treatment. So we're now using it for depression, anxiety, OCD. And we're, they're also, we just learned today that they might be kind of moving in into kind of new areas such as smoking cessation. And we're really figuring out that these are much more effective ways of treating some of these conditions. But the thing is, these are, uh, they're adjunctive to therapies, right? So I would have a client who might have really serious OCD. They're seeing me for those kind of behavioral principles, learning strategies, but then they're also seeing this, uh, going to these TMS treatments up to maybe five times a week to really target that area of the brain. And in that session, here's the even more amazing part is they activate that part of the brain during the session. So imagine, let's take something novel. Imagine you're afraid of, a common one for OCD is contagion, right? You're afraid of getting dirty. <laughs> imagine actually they will do something to provoke you. It's called a provocation. They will get something dirty, go pick something out the trash, right? To make you activate it like that part of the brain and then shoot the magnet right there. It's amazing. Right. And so over time, not only are you behaviorally acclimating to it, that part of the brain is becoming less and less active. What we're really seeing today is almost this like revolution in kind of managing serious mental illness. And you see this in treatments for like ketamine. We're really seeing the use of substances like psilocybin being kind of commonly used. Like John Hopkins has been showing really crazy decreases in depression for their psilocybin treatment. Uh, programs, um, even the use of things like ketamine. And again, we're really seeing that TMS and other kind of forms are really becoming the standard because the medicines are not working. And we're really seeing people who really have see serious symptoms kind of really suffering for years, right? They come in and a lot of the times our patients will come in and they've been on 13, 14 different medications and, and they're coming. And the thing is a lot of the clients we get, again, this is a very these people have been through a lot of treatment, right? So these are very, they've been through everything else. And that's, this is the last, kind of the last ride. And if you look up kind of Brooklyn Mines history is their, their kind of founding client is this woman named Mona who really suffered from really, really serious depression and ended up taking her life and it ended up being like a huge, like a lawsuit for the practice. And it really was showed like, the difficulty, right? Like how do you, cause nobody wants to take the liability as a doctor of taking these really sick patients. And so like, I really love being here because I think we work with those patients on a daily basis, but it requires a lot of um, hard work to kind of do this work. So what are the most challenging parts of your job and what do you see as the most rewarding parts of your job? If those are two different things. I don't really find the work challenging at this point. I think the most challenging part, part comes after months of working or years of working this kind of job. I think um, there is a decrease in your empathy as you kind of do this work. So for me, the hardest part is not making sure I don't get burned out, right? Because I kind of am driven by this work. I love helping people. I could do this for 80 hours a week, but I know as a mental health professional, that's also not healthy, right? So for me, it's figuring out what my balance is and where I need to draw the lines and not getting too drawn in, especially when you work with a very high needs population. And one of our models is we, we are really accessible to patients. So at our practice, you know, people can call me whenever. And so far it's not been a problem, but like that's a lot of responsibility. Part I find most rewarding is really being able to create change, whether that's at the personal level. So seeing someone who's really sick get better and being able to like say to them like, wow, you were so sick. You know, you didn't want to live a day, you know, when you first came in, now you're making this great progress and also creating programs um, and really 
teaching people about a lot of these issues. Um, we've just really started programming around a lot of uh, issues around race and culture and, you know, how to understand people even in the workplace. And that's one of the things we're really excited about too, is really kind of developing this new approach to how to even think about the industry. Right. So, um, cause I think one of the things we're really doing is thinking about how do we think about insurance differently, right? Cause it's great to have a private practice that's doing these really cool things. But at the end of the day, if we're not making sure this is accessible to everybody, then I, we feel like we're you know doing a disservice to people. So what's ahead for therapy and clinical mental health? I think teletherapy is here to stay. I cannot imagine, especially with like younger and more tech savvy and busier people. I can't imagine people going back. It's so convenient for, you know, the person, right? Go to your room, close the door and meet your therapist. Cause a lot of the thing, what prevents people from going to therapy is even though it's only an hour session, right? You still have to get ready. You have to go there. You have to, you know, wait in the lobby. You have to sit there. That's three, four hours out your day. So I think the number one thing is we're going to see a surge of people really looking for mental health and finding that. I think the problem is, is there just logistically is not, there are not enough therapists, right? It's just, there's not like if everybody was to get mental health that needed it, there wouldn't be enough of us. So for me, what we're going to also see is I think we're going to see a lot more of these mental health type products. They're a mixed bag, you know, these better helps and talk spaces and, you know, even these, you know, mental health apps that like mood trackers, I think we're going to see a kind of boom in this. But I'm going to say that I don't think this is a replacement for a good relationship with a good therapist, whether that is therapy or otherwise. I really think that that human connection interaction, when we look across modalities, when we look at things like common factors, the most important thing across different techniques is the relationship with the therapist. That's the strongest predictor for client success, not what program they're using or what model it is, but how much did you trust that person? So for me, it's how do we create really good tools that still help us build relationships with people? And I think a lot of that can be handled by people who, again, don't necessarily need a PhD in psychology. I feel like what I do the most and what people get the most benefit from is just a lot of the skills that can be taught by anybody. So I think we're going to see a lot more less skilled workers kind of, or people who have bachelors and masters in counseling kind of move into the role of kind of providing this intermediate kind of therapy with more specialists kind of up top. Just to go back and to play devil's advocate for a minute, obviously telehealth, telemedicine has its benefits, right? You don't have to go anywhere. Do you see the flip side? Do you see where actually being in a room two feet away from a person also has benefit? Absolutely. And this is where like my kind of fear is because I think for some people, especially for like anxiety and OCD, like things that like encourage avoidance, (laughs) coming in the office is actually a huge kind of exposure response, right? I actually had to get up today for people with depression, right? So so whenever somebody comes and sees me with depression, the first thing I say is, wow, you made it today. You know I mean? You got out of bed. You didn't have to be here. You're feeling so miserable, but you got here. Like, how do I really say that if, you know, they just had to roll over and turn over the screen, right? So I definitely think it is going to become more nuanced. The thing that I think is missing is I think there's going to be a new skill set that's required for counselors, right? Like, how do you say to somebody like, I don't think you're a good fit. I don't think I would not be, I don't think it's a good fit for you to do telehealth. I think we should meet in person, right? And how do we have that conversation? I don't think we're quite, the ethics have kind of caught up to this and the training is quite caught up to this. 
I definitely agree that there are going to be cases and there are reasons why it's better to go in person, right? Even for families, like one thing we're running into is I had a young, uh, a younger client cancel on me because he didn't want to show up, right? Like if mom had brought him to the office, right? He would have seen me, right? But because he's at home and he can avoid her, he can go to the other room and kind of hide out, you know, he's not going to come. And sometimes people need to be brought in just to, you know, get comfortable and warmed up and meet the person so that that fear can go down. So again, yeah, I do think that office space will still be needed, but I think it's going to be more of a flex space in the future. And I think even before the pandemic, uh, I've always had a really interest in technology and counseling and therapies. And I think we were already moving towards a blended kind of uh, future, but I think this is going to accelerate that. For anyone out there listening, whether it's a Muhlenberg student, a Muhlenberg alum, someone else who wants to pursue the, the kind of work that you're doing, um, what advice would you give? What, what words of wisdom would you give them? Take as many opportunities as you can, especially early in your career. Like um, when people often look at my CV, it's not braggy, but like I have so much stuff on there because I just wouldn't say no for the beginning of my career. Like I research teams on alcoholism and pregnancies and projects that, you know, dealt with like things I had no interest in. I remember my first job ended up being on a, like a team that, you know, helped people with severe schizophrenia in the community. I never worked that done that job before, but I think it really taught me so much about myself and like how to do this work. So really I would say just take every opportunity, find opportunities to take volunteer for things um, and really just put, make sure you keep continuously putting yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, and I really think that you're not going to be successful at everything. I think those failures are just as important as those successes. So really taking risks and trying a lot of new things is my advice. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded remotely and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.